just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. This is Eyewear, built for the digital age, and Back to the Blue is giving our listeners 10% off your next purchase of blue light, sleep, or kids' glasses. Click the link in the show notes for your exclusive discount. This is the sign you've been waiting for to invest in blue light glasses. We know you will love your Baxters, and we know that you will feel the difference. There are times in life where we get to meet people who really have been there and done it all. And maybe even to the point where it makes us wonder, what the heck have I been doing with my life all this time for someone else to achieve all these things? It can make you stop and wonder. My guest today is such a person. He is based in Perth in Australia and went from starting off his career as a miner to setting up his own education business. He ended up working in venture capital for some years. He's listed two businesses on the International Stock Exchange and has now become a certified professional speaker with the Public Speaking Association of Australia. And he is definitely an expert in presenting data-heavy information from the platform and also in virtual presentations. Really an amazing guest that you will learn a lot from. I know this because I did too. I hope you will enjoy this conversation with my guest today, Rail Bricker. Welcome to Speaking of Influence, the podcast about public speaking, presentation skills and tools of influence and persuasion with presentation skills expert, Johnny Ball. Most online content creators seem to agree that live streaming is the future and definitely the way to go. If you have thought about live streaming and you'd like to give it a try, my recommendation is Restream.io. It's the service I use and if you use the link in the description, you will get a $10 credit after you complete your first live stream. Welcome to Speaking of Influence Rail Bricker. Thank you. Good to be here. It's really great to be speaking to you. Now, I think there are very few people who I've ever had on as guests who seem to have been there, done it all, bought the T-shirt when it comes to business and public speaking. But you really have. You've, uh, you seem to have done just about everything. You've got probably one of the most overqualified and experienced guests I've ever had on my show. So I'm really happy to be thank speaking you very to much. you. Thank <laughs> you very much. And, I, and in that respect, I am always learning from the people who've been speaking and doing things longer than me. So it's an amazing, it's amazing space. And when we stop learning is when we die. 
I agree. I, I've been lucky enough to be learning in the hallowed halls of uh, ninjutsu, Bujinkan ninjutsu. And even the most senior instructors, they will all say we're all still students. We're all still learning, even though they seem to know everything about the, about the subject. Absolutely. It's a good attitude to keep that we all stay yes. learning and we're all learners on our journey. Fantastic. One of the things that I wanted to start by talking about with you was really about some of your business experience because you are someone who has used public speaking in a, in a very big way in a lot of your business. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background, what you do and where public speaking has come into that for you? Okay. So, I mean, I, I was lucky enough that my late father took me to Toastmasters when I was 14. I couldn't be a member. I think there was an age restriction, but I went along and I, I, it was pretty much a member. I, actually won the South African district championships when I was 20. So I'd always been around speaking. When I started my first business, real business, I had a few at university, but we never count those because the tax man, you know, whatever. But my first real business happened to be in consulting and management consulting, which morphed into an education business. And so my partner and I spent the better part of six years lecturing. Now, we both came from very strong business school backgrounds, from university backgrounds. And in business school, you tend to present a lot. So so you you are judged by a lot of the quality of your presentation in the business school environment. And so we started this business. We ended up with 4,000 students over six campuses. And we spent a lot of time on stages educating students. And what it, it was interesting, the learning from that was I learned how to explain things in simple terms. Because our target audience were previously disadvantaged students who had very low scores at the end of their year 12 in, in, in schooling and were really struggling. They were not accepted by any university. We took them on, did a three-year diploma spread over four years. And so we had to learn skills there going from an MBA environment where you're talking to top-level academic people suddenly explained basic finance and economics in very low level. So it was very interesting learning in terms of speaking. And then came to Australia a few years after that, after listing that company in the Stock Exchange, being in venture capital, again, where we had to present a lot to um, investors about the opportunities that we were providing them as a venture fund. I started a finance-broking business in Australia in 2001, and... In 2003, I was asked by property developers to give a talk to their clients on how to finance property. And after the talk, they said, wow, you've got the skill of breaking things down into small components that the man in the street can understand. You don't talk like a banker. So let's, you know, let's form a relationship. And that relationship was over a billion dollars of mortgages that my business has written. So we've done three billion in the business and a billion came from me being on stage. So very influenced by my voice, my speaking, you know, you know, standing. I, you can see I'm a very visual person. I know people on the podcast listening to the audio won't see that, but people who watch the YouTube or streamed version will. I'm very visual. I, I've always got my hands out. Uh, I'm always told I'm telling fishing stories because my hands are spread about the, the width of my chest. <laughs> so, yeah, so speaking is- has been a big part of my life. Six years ago, I decided to switch from speaking just about finance and retirement to speaking about how to build businesses because I had done that on two stock exchanges. The venture fund we had in Australia listed in 2000, late 2000. And so 
I moved from being just speaking about finance, and I still speak about finance today, to speaking about business and business excellence and the ideas behind what goes into building excellent businesses. And I got my certified speaking professional in 2019, currently president of Professional Speakers Australia in Western Australia. So very influenced by speaking every day in my life. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Now, do you think that speaking and the ability to be able to present in public is a critical leadership skill or is it optional? No, I definitely think it's a, it's, it's a critical skill that can be learned. And that's, you know, I don't, I, you know, th- th- there are a couple of fears that everybody has and public speaking for most people is one of those fears. I believe you can learn the skill. You may not ever develop the skill unless you have a passion for it to being on the big stages. I, you know, I love the adrenaline. I love a thousand people in front of me in an audience. But equally, I love a classroom of 10 people. So, yeah. But, but the, for the average corporate executive, I think they need to be able to present and present on various levels. So they need to be able to present at board level or C-suite level at a high level, you know, and not go down. A lot of people go down the rabbit hole. They'll start right. talking particularly, and, and I, I love accountants, but sometimes they get far too involved in the detail. And so they'll put up a presentation with 27 lines of numbers on it and expect people in the 10th row to see it. And that's because that's their crutch. They're looking at the screen in front of them and reading off the notes. And they go down a rabbit hole of detail. Whereas if you're at C-suite level, you don't want to be going down that rabbit hole. You want to be talking strategy, talking big picture. But if you're explaining things to the auditors, you need to go down the detail. And so... Those skills of being able to to switch between big picture and small picture, I think are even more critical. People will accept an average presentation if it's if it's at the right level. Yeah. In in your experience and your own opinion, what really makes a good leadership level C-suite class of presentation? That you've given us a, a few insights already, but what would you think it really takes to put that together? I think so so if we if we separate out the audio and the body language. So I, I'm five foot six. Okay. You can't see it on camera and the way this camera is set up, I look like quite tall. But no, I'm five foot six. And so early on I had to develop a skill for standing in front of a lectern and not using notes and maybe having, you know, a small little palm card in my hand with a few pointers that I used to use at Toastmasters. But beyond that, I've always spoken off the cuff. Now, I think that also by seeing your whole body and not just the top half of your chest like we do on Zoom and everything today, if you're presenting to an audience and they can see your whole body and they can see your body movement, I think that gives you some sincerity, some honesty in the presentation. As long as you're not what's called a cage tiger and you see them on stage because to get rid of the nervousness, they go left and right and left and right for no apparent reason. It's not for audience engagement or any of the good sort of superior speaking skills. It's just what they, what they do. The second thing is that's the audio. So being confident in the audio by dressing well, by, by having a demeanor makes it acceptable. So I'll cut the, the second part is, is we're all PowerPoint driven or whatever, or Prezi or one of the software packages. And 
people tend to put too much detail. So if you look at any of my professional presentations, there are no more than five words on any slide, and mostly it's graphics. And all I want is behind me or next to me or wherever the screen is, I want a graphic up there that people look at and go, why is there a picture of a crossroads? And, I, and it's, a, it's a good example, I guess. So in one of my keynote speeches, I talk about us being, and I, and I stand on stage with my hands like this, being at the crossroads of humanity and technology. And behind me is a crossroads in the middle of a, of a forest. And all you see is the green and two dirt tracks crossing. I thought it was a great aerial photograph. Yeah. And so that tells them I'm at a crossroad, doesn't tell them what the content is of what I'm delivering, so now they focus back on me. And so a lot of guys, and yes, obviously, if you're presenting financials to a, a group of investors, you, where I see people making mistakes is they put up a whole balance sheet on the screen and go, well, if you look at line seven, it says this, and line, you know, no one can read that, no one can care. But there are techniques you can use to make it bigger, zoom in on particular numbers as you want to present them, make it interesting, keep it visually attractive. Mm. In the corporate sense, that I think is the biggest downfall is that there are people and use that as their crutch. They read every line out of it. So, so, so in truth, I think someone who does an average presentation, they don't articulate their voice, they don't go up and down, they don't engage with the audience potentially with eye contact but their presentation is pleasing. It doesn't take the audience away from them. You know, it's, it's just high-level facts or high-level pictures, and they are the ones presenting. Because your podcast is called, you know, influence. It has the word influence in it, in, in yeah. presenting influence, right? In order to, to present with influence, part of it is a lot of how you say it, how you look how you engage with your audience and less about what you say sometimes. Right. You know, so you, you can stumble over some detail and, and that also puts people off, you know, stumble over detail and then you go, Oh, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You, you don't, you go, Oh, oops, I made a mistake. Self-effacing humor almost. And then carry on. So those are the skills. I think senior management lead is, is the ability need is the ability not to say, Oh, I made a mistake. What am I going to do now? Heaven, you know, the heavens are going to open, the floor is going to open. None of that happens. Yeah. You know, it's just being human, being natural. Yeah. And I want to come back to, to something you said about, uh, about the sort of informational kind of presentations, because I guess as a public speaker trainer, which is some of the work that I do outside of these podcasts, that I tend to push people away from information heavy presentations in the first place but as you rightly say there are some circumstances or situations where you have to give a data heavy or information heavy presentation but you're saying that there are things you can do to make that a bit more engaging could you give us like maybe two yeah. or three specifics about what people could do to help with that so, so i've had to do that so in the finance space one of the questions people always ask i'm getting a little technical now but it, it'll it'll become clear one of the questions people always ask is, how did the bank work out how much I could borrow? Not that technical, but in order to explain that to people in the middle of a presentation, I would have to have a slide up that said, 
here's what you earned, here's the tax you paid, here's the rent you received, etc., etc. And and you know, ten lines, because that's about what makes up the calculation. And it's not going to make sense if you only have five lines in another slide with five lines as much as you want bigger text. So I would yeah. have netting, you know, gross income tax, net income rent available to to invest whatever. And and so it would show them how the calculation works. But then I'd superimpose numbers over those to show them, well, if someone earns a hundred thousand, these are how the numbers work out. But then I had caught caught screen grabs and put those in as zooms. So as so I'd say, right, if you looked at the the, the gross income, I'm not expecting you to read it, click the button on the presenter and it would zoom in big even though it was just a, a screen grab made big as the next slide, right? And so it highlighted one number or one sentence, you know. And then I'll click the next one and say, right, now it says tax. Well, tax is calculated at 31%, so there's the $30,000 tax. Big zoom in shows them what they're doing. Then you'd go to the next one, etc., etc. So that's a technique I use quite often with data-heavy stuff. Another technique I use is the fade in and fade out on a presentation. So you have everything as a black and white background, and then you fade certain things into color, back out to black, and then the next line fades into color, back out to black, etc. It's a little bit of a pain to set those up, but once you've got a system going, it works quite well. So you're highlighting the fact that you want them to look at there and then, the problem, as you would see for most presentations, is when they go data heavy, they put a whole sentence and the, the fox jumped over the moon instead mm. of just saying fox and then talking about the fox. They tend to, to go to too much detail, which is not necessary. And you know what? A lot of the time I tell people, email me and I'll send you a copy of the presentation. You know, I'll send you the data. I'll send you the detail. But but that's the, the, the one way. So from a presentation point of view, I tend to use a lot of color. And if I have to go into detail, I use the fade in from black so that it's almost hard to read the stuff that I don't want them to read. And then one line is highlighted and bold, and that folds back to black and white, and the next line folds out to color. Yeah. So so long as the flow of information and what's visible on any presentation isn't too much information or too overloading that really helps with keeping people focused and not going into too much depth on the uh, detail on the information as well will help people to keep with the flow of the presentation. It makes a lot I mean, of sense. I, I, I saw an economist the other day and I was sitting in the back of the room and granted, I didn't have my, my glasses on. I had my sunglasses on top of my head because I just come from the sun and my sunglasses are prescription, but his presentation was, his, he was very interesting and very entertaining. But every time he referenced a graph and picked up a pointer, I knew, uh-oh, this is going to be, he's going to be pointing this little laser pointer at something on the screen, and it's going to be this little picture there, and he's going to try and explain the trend, and you can't see the graph anyway. Mm. And that was exactly it. But he was articulate enough to say things like, oh, look, I know it's a complicated graph, but and I'm going to send out the presentation to you afterwards, and so when you look at it, look for the red line, and that's the one I'm talking about. So he made a point of acknowledging that it was quite small. And that's the other thing. People are too afraid to even reference their their presentation. Yeah. You know, they go, 
you know, you can't reference presentation. Of course you can. You can say, when I send you this copy, look for the red line. Easy. Word has it in the business world that Jeff Bezos has banned PowerPoint presentations in Amazon uh, board meetings. Do you think that's a good move? Yeah, I mean, I do. I, look, particularly at board level, I sit on, on, on a couple boards. We get our board packs a week before. The only, and one of them is a school board. So interestingly, the only time we have presentations or PowerPoints is when the heads of department come and present their results for the year and they PowerPoint driven. But the rest of the time in our board meetings, it's if you look at the board pack you got, if you look at the board pack, you know, page seven, and we would have, so most of us try to save paper, we all bring our laptops and open up the documents on a laptop or an iPad, but we, we don't actually use presentations at all. We all reference the board pack that we've got beforehand. So I, yes, I agree. I mean, I'm a big fan, as I showed you before the, the recording, of using drawings. Yeah. Uh, you know, so a lot of my video, I switch over to, to, to another part, another camera here, and I actually draw pictures. And I use colors and draw pictures and highlight things because I think it also makes more sense sometimes because when you're drawing, you can add elements ad hoc and people ask a question so you can circle something or put an arrow on, a, on when you're drawing. So I, I love using flip charts. I use a glass wall for a lot of my presentations where I can see through it. So there's different techniques that we use. But, yeah, I think the other issue is that Zoom and sharing screens, over, particularly over COVID, has been a problem yeah. because you've seen presenters who've literally read off their own slides because it's big on everyone else's screen. So one of the techniques I use is if I'm using a slide, and I'll just use one, I'll just pick it up on another camera like that, I know, and then I will put myself in one of the corners when I'm presenting. So you'll still hear me talking and seeing me presenting on the presentation, but I'm standing in one of the corners of a slide. And so that gives a much better effect. Now, that's a typical slide of mine, four words and a nice picture in the background. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a much better way of doing it. And I use, uh, I don't know which technology you use, but I use Ecamm Live to do all this stuff. And, and it allows you to do some incredible things that like you said about drawing on the, the glass screen. You, you can do something that looks essentially the same with, with this technology. It's quite amazing. But I think these things, although they can take a bit of a time to figure out, absolutely make presentations more interesting, yeah. look better and still keep your face involved as well. And it's one of the things that I learned some time back, like when I first started doing online webinars and, and courses and training that we were using GoToWebinar. And at the time, GoToWebinar did not have any functionality other than- and You couldn't you, see the audience either. Yeah, you couldn't see them, they couldn't see you, but you could you could show the slideshow. And so that was, that was it. And we got very used to just sort of doing voice-based stuff. And then it started to become apparent that having your face in shot for for the presentations was actually a really important part of it and that people needed to feel that connection. It improved things. It didn't take anything away. It improved things. And that has now become industry standard that oh, you absolutely. are visible when you're doing when you're doing your presentations. I mean I don't think you know a lot of um, the software packages still when you share a screen you kind of lose 
the speaker view and that kind of stuff, which is why I have it hardware wired. So I have an, yeah. an Atom mini switcher here, and I've got it hardware wired. That's how I can, I can switch between the cameras. But, but Minicam or one of the software packages or Ecamm will all do the same. We'll yeah. all do the same sort of thing for you. Yeah, it's, it's really good. And you, you actually have a, a full-on studio setup there, right? I mean, you do you do enough of this yeah. that you have dedicated a space to five, five screens in front of me, yeah. So two of them on a really, really fast computer. The rest are on really old computers that I recycled when I upgraded my staff's computers. I didn't actually upgrade. I just took those computers made sure they had um, HDMI cards. But... But essentially, the, the very powerful computer is for my streaming. That's the main one you can see me on today because I have two screens. So when I'm presenting for conferences and workshops, I can see all of the um, people across my two screens. And so it, and that's at eye level. It's all set up at eye level. Below me is a PowerPoint screen and another camera screen and another camera screen below me. The, the presentation wall over there with another camera and another monitor so that even if I'm presenting there, I can still see the people on screen. That's a, that's a very impressive setup. It's uh, a lot more involved uh, and expensive than mine, but uh, it, it sounds really good. Do, do you ever use live streaming in the format of not actually having a specific event, but just putting content onto social media channels? No, I actually don't. And, and a friend of mine who's really good at social media and gets five or 10,000 engagements per post called me about two weeks ago and we had coffee last week and said, you know, you've got to do X, Y, Z. You've got to do more social media because uh, he loves my content. It's just hidden. It's not. So I do a lot of live four-hour, half-day workshops, and I'm standing here for four hours. I actually have a mat that I stand on, a cushion mat that I stand mm. on specifically for that. That came with my standing desk, but I use it here now. But, yeah, so he actually said, no, I need to do more live stream." I'm much more comfortable as a coach, trainer, keynote speaker standing here with lots of people in front of me. I One of the skills I lack is that of a TV presenter. If you think about recording video or recording selfie video, it is being a TV presenter. It's exactly the same thing. You're talking, yes, in a studio, in TV, you maybe got two or three people around the studio, but they're all busy. But essentially, you're looking to camera and talking to yourself. And so that skill, I have some people who are coaching me on that skill of, because I, you, even when you're watching me, I will move my eyes off the video because I'm so used to scanning two screens or a whole room of people that my, my brain says, scan the room all the time. Scan, look for eye contact. Mm -hmm. And to have eye contact with myself in a camera is interesting. If you're given the option between live presenting in person and live presenting through streaming, which is your preference? Uh, give me warm bodies every day. Um, <laughs> cold bodies don't help because they're just not responsive. But, of course. but warm bodies are amazing. You know, just I've spoken in audiences in, in Kathmandu in Nepal where – the, the humor, the, the, a little bit of the self-effacing stuff, not, not jokes, but just commentary just falls flat. And so you have to adjust pretty quickly to a very stoic audience. But it's an audience. You know, yeah. you're still watching them and they're intently watching you and making notes all the time. And, and 
but no facial expression. You know, and so as part of that presentation, that one I spoke to you about with, with the crossroads of humanity and technology, what I did there is a spur of the moment thing in the middle of the presentation. I thought I have to actually rev this audience up. I have to kind of wake them up. I was the opening speaker on a Saturday morning at a conference. So I got them all to stand up. And I had the slide up of the crossroad and I said to people, take your right hand, put it on your left shoulder. And take your left hand and put it on your right shoulder and now embrace the intersection of humanity and technology. And I said, while you're embracing it, and then I spoke about what I wanted to speak about, this intersection of humanity and technology. But everybody in, the, in this 550 or 600 people in the audience were standing up and standing like this and embracing it. And then the mood broke because they all sat down and they went, oh, that's interesting. We've now stretched. We're awake. Let's listen to the next part of the presentation. So, you know, you do things like that, but that, that's, you don't get that on Zoom. Mm. If you had everybody standing and you could see them waist up like that, potentially, but you're not. You're generally seeing people like that. You're not even fitting their head into their, into their camera. And so, you know, you've got very little to go on in terms of reaction. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thing that I think a lot of speakers miss out, even in live in-person stuff, is this idea of, of state changes and state management with the audience. They just get up and do their, do their thing. And that very much happens, I think, in, in Zoom meetings and things as well. Whereas sometimes maybe even, even if it's just once or twice during an hour or more meeting to get people to, take a stand or have, stretch their arms up, stretch their legs out, shake it all out, do something that changes their state for a few moments really makes a huge difference in terms of engagement. And of course you can't control whether they do it or not, but it still matters. No, well you, so, so one of the, the um, mastermind groups that, I, that I'm with, um, we start every mastermind with a meditation. Okay. So get everyone in the mood, everyone, you know, and we say, to people, oh, yeah, yeah, close your eyes and now I'll breathe in hold it for five and breathe out. And, and when, when you're the presenter and you're watching and you're seeing that your entire screen is people sitting there with their eyes closed, breathing in and out, you, you know you've connected with them in some way. You know, when I do presentations 20, 30, up to 50 people that I can fit on my screen, I tell the organization I want cameras on. And if someone turns their camera off for no more than two or three minutes, you know, they, they want to get up or whatever it is to stretch and they, they want to turn the camera off. But, you know, you want people's cameras on. You want them to be engaging with you as much as you're engaging with them. Yeah. But it still doesn't replace. You know, a great friend of mine, a, a professional speaker, earns over a million U.S. a year speaking or until 2019. That's all he did was keynote speaking. And I once asked him, I said, why do you have a full video of a keynote of yours on the internet, on, on your YouTube channel. And he said, because people still want to hear me live. They want to hear the inflections in my voice. They want to see my stage management. You know, lots of things. They want to, they want to be able to ask me a live question. They, they can get the information from the video. They can get it from my blogs. But they want to hear me live. They want to hear how I change it up. I'm not going to use the same words every time. That's what they want to hear. Yeah. I, I can get that very much. In terms of that most presenting, at least at the moment, is still virtual, although 
in-person things are coming back, thankfully. What, if anything, have been benefits that you've noticed through this? I mean, the joke of, of the last 18 months of our lives, you know, 2020 and 2021, is a friend of mine is an MC, professional master of ceremonies. He actually had a T-shirt made with a microphone with a line through it. And every time people are on mute, he opens up his shirt and goes, you're on mute. Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I think that was, our, that was our saying of the last uh, of two years, you know, you're on mute. What did we learn? I think we learned that we can still build rich and robust cultures, which is one of the areas that I speak about, even through computer-based engagement. You know, one of the biggest challenges 2019 speaking to companies was, oh, my God, what about my workforce? They're remote. How am I going to get them to embrace the corporate culture? Well, 2020, 2021 forced us to do that. So it forced us to create. You know, when we were in lockdown here, which was not as long as the UK, we've been in this amazing bubble in Perth for a, for a, a fairly good length of time. What happened is every morning I had a nine o'clock Zoom meeting scheduled with my team, about 13 people, 14 people, depending at the time. And I would message them at 10 to 9, say, I'll be on Zoom in 10 minutes, same link as yesterday. All I want you to do is pop in and say, hi, bring your coffee, sit down, go and sit outside your house, do something different for those 10 minutes. Let's share a joke. Let's talk about what you did last night. And let's just do what we do normally sitting around having coffee in the kitchen. And so I try to recreate that environment. So, so Zoom and things taught us to do that. We, in the lockdown period, we were having Zoom over, you know, drinks over Zoom with friends. Yeah. We'd all be sitting on our patios. It was summer. And our summers here are really beautiful. And at 6.30 till 9 at night, we'd be sitting there with a bottle or two of wine. We weren't driving anywhere because we were in lockdown. And so we'd have a, two bottles of wine and friends on Zoom and laughing and joking and exactly what we do around the table, but just not drinking each other's wine. Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. So what did we learn about presenting? I think we learned to project our voices better because microphones are different. You know, some people, you know, I'm using an external microphone. A lot of people still use laptop-based microphones. People had to learn to project their voices. I think those who are generally meek, soft voices, I think it actually helped them. I think it gave them a voice. I think the fact that we're in a Zoom meeting where you're actually, as chairman of a meeting of 20 people, you can see all 20, and you can, you know, someone wants to talk, you know, they press a button, and it flashes a little hand up on the screen. I think those sorts of skills, so the people who never really spoke in a meeting because there was too many other people speaking yeah. got their voice during this period because the chairman of a meeting was better at doing it. But I also think we got zoomed out. Okay. Right. I think I think people have – so things have changed. Podcasts as an example. If you spoke to most podcasters three, four, five, six years ago, and, and I run my own podcast, as, you, as you're aware, called Business Excellence, they would say to you 15 to 20 minutes maximum per episode because that's the average commute time. That's when people are consuming mm -hmm. podcasts. What have we learned as podcasters? We can go for 40 minutes to an hour, but people are consuming them at home while they're working. It's, 
it's the colleagues, it's, it's theoretically the voice of their colleague who they would have had a banter with during the day. They're now listening to you and I bantering on a podcast. Hopefully, you know, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, things have changed. Those are the things we've learned. I mean, in terms of, of presentation skills, I stand and so I can use my hands, but a lot of people prefer still to sit when they're on camera and therefore you can't do that because your hands come in and out of frame. So a lot of people have had to learn new skills. Most yeah. professional speakers I know stand when they're presenting because there's energy. There's the same energy you have on stage. You lose a little bit of the stage presence as an example. When I talk about finance and I'm talking about people's journey as a good example, or, you know, I tell a story about a journey that I took. And, and when I tell that story, I want to anchor my audience. So looking at me from an audience perspective, on my left-hand side, on my left would normally be the start. But because the audience are looking at me, it has to be on my right. So I walk over. I'll see if I can do this while I'm still in camera. I walk over to a spot and I tell the starting point of my journey. I then move over to a middle part of the stage and tell the middle part of the journey. And then you can't do that really. I can do it because I'm standing here and moving, but it doesn't have that great an effect. So where I was relying on my stage presence in a particular point, and then I talk about the beginning of my journey and I would point to that part on the stage where I was standing can't do that on, on, on camera. So you have to do your presentations differently. Yeah. It's known as temporal anchoring, right? It's uh, where you're putting certain emotions into particular positions or certain associations into particular positions on yeah. your stage or on your platform. And uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly harder to do in virtual presentations, but as you are demonstrating, it's not impossible. It's not impossible, but I have a very small space to move here. I mean, the other thing is when you're telling a story, you know, I said to John and John said to me, using the whole, I said to John and John said to me, well, normally because of COVID restrictions, John wouldn't be in the same room as me. <laughs> okay. And so it makes less sense when you can only see me from here up and I've got mm -hmm. my head this way and my head this way. When you're actually standing and doing it, you know, I spoke to John and John spoke to me and you're anchoring it there. Very different way of doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm very big on the whole standing up thing as well. I, I stand up to do my my group work. I stand up, probably stand up for most of my work now, other than when I need to do writing, then I go and sit down somewhere for, for a while. Okay. Uh, but when I'm presenting or even doing most of my editing and a lot of work, I will be stood up and generally find throughout the day that that has made a huge impact on my own personal energy. Like I have more energy. I feel less tired at the end of the day. And I feel like it's made huge health improvements. And I know people talk about stand-up desks and stuff, but I think it's not just good for presenting and speaking. It does help to raise the energy there and gives you a bit more flexibility for where you can go, what you can do. But in general, being stood up more of the time is a really good way to go in terms of improving oh, your overall well-being. Yeah. A great friend here is a physiotherapist who's just got a PhD. And her PhD was researching into the health benefits of stand-up desks. And so it has been, you know, as you say, research work into that space. I mean, a great, another great fr presentation friend of mine here teaches presentation skills. When, when Zoom hit, when, when COVID hit, I remember him sending me a photograph of 
he had found two boxes. He's he's a lot taller than me, and he had found two archive storage boxes at the at the uh, stationery store, and put those together and put his laptop on top of those, so that he could get his camera because he he didn't have an external camera or microphone at the time, and so he could stand and present, but with these two boxes, sent me the photograph of it. I thought it was quite funny. Yeah. But that's the improvisation that we did, you know, in the early days of COVID in order in, in order to, I, I guess, as a professional speaker, as different to a corporate speaker who's presenting something to a board or to management, I have to deliver the same value for the person that I'm presenting for as closely as I can to the real experience. Yeah. And so that's what this is all about. It's about the fact that my fees haven't changed. What I charge corporates for an hour's presentation or a half-day presentation hasn't changed. The only benefit to the corporate is they're not paying for airfares and hotels. Okay? But, in fact, there is talk in the speaking industry fees should have gone up because the corporates were saving, but that's a whole different debate. Yeah. <laughs> but it's about delivering as much value as I can to their team whilst they can't be in the same place. Which is important. Now, I, I think personally that there are few areas where influence and persuasion and public speaking come together so much as selling from the stage. And this is something, as you've already mentioned, that you not only have experience at, but some great success in. And I would like to get some insights from you about what's important when it comes to being able to sell from the stage, sell from a platform in person or virtual. So virtual is a lot harder because I mean, so, so let me, let me, my own personal style is, is a soft sell style. So when, when, and all my selling from stage per se has been, or 90% of it has been finance and selling people to come and take mortgages from my financial services business, etc. 10% of it has been me presenting and then people signing up for a course. So I have a number of programs, you know, a, a a 90-day video program and a, and a four-month hybrid classroom program where um, we run a classroom academy as well as people online, and they banter with each other. I have all the technology set up, three cameras running at any time, four microphones running, um, that they banter with each other, etc. So we have sold those programs. It's always been a very soft sell. That's my style. There are some great selling from stage guys who create such a hype, particularly when you're in a live audience. Yeah. And then, you know, for the next, for, you know, for, for the next 37 seconds, if you run to the back of the room, one of my assistants there will hand you a form. Please hand them your credit card and your bank number, your pin number. And no, I'm not quite as bad as that, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, that's, that's the, the, the style. I'm not a big fan of that style. I've seen guys do it online, so they'll run a two-hour webinar and every 18 minutes. Why they came up with 18 minutes, I don't know. But the rule I've been told by the best people who sell from stage is that every 18 minutes, 
you should switch to sales mode and tell them about something. So a special offer, a free product, a bonus if they sign up today, something like that. But interestingly, you, you listen to the guys who are really good at that, and they talk about don't be afraid to talk about the subjects that people try and avoid. So when you talk about pricing and you're trying to sell a $5,000 or a $10,000 program from stage, don't be afraid to talk about it. You don't say it's going to cost you. You use the words your investment is, you know, something along those lines. But don't be afraid to talk about the number. And in fact, they say you should always have three offers. A very low offer, cheap offer that everyone's going to go, how can I really get value from that? A really expensive offer and something, the one you really want to sell somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Because human nature is to go, oh, the cheap one. I don't want to be associated with buying the cheap one. Oh, that re that big one, unless money's no object, I won't take the really expensive one. And so the one you wanted them to buy anyway is the middle offer. Yeah. And so that was one of the te techniques I was taught early on. And so, yeah, I, you know, I, I have a number of offers from $5,000 to $200. And, you know, my, my sweet spot is, is the $500 to the $1,500 product because that's what I like. That's what is my, my most efficient product. What, in your opinion, then makes somebody influential or persuasive on the platform? Okay, so... I've seen a number of techniques. One is knowledge. So one is genuine, you know, genuine value. So I've, I've seen guys who sell through fear and I hate that. I hate that technique. So, you know, I, I was watching a president. I did a road show in 2017. I don't remember the dates, you know, this is lockdown and masks and stuff has you know, messed me up. Now, 2017, I did a, I did a roadshow six cities around Australia and one of the presenters who was with me on the roadshow. And I watched him every time because he came on just after me and I was there having a drink of water and relaxing after my presentation. And every time he, he would do the following technique, he would turn around to some random person in the audience and he used to walk through the audience. So he used to, I generally use an over ear microphone, uh, a country man as it so happens, but I generally, when I'm presenting, use over-ear mic. He would use a handheld, and he walked up to someone and said, just give me your mobile number, because I want to call, and he'd have his mobile in his hand, and he'd go, I just want to call your mobile and show your rest of your friends how bad your voicemail is. That's a horrible <laughs> technique, okay? And I would never... Yeah, that's horrible. That's humiliating. At, at yeah. the end of this presentation, people gave him raving presentations, and yet... I heard him say to people, oh, 82.7%, and he'd write it up on the board. And we'd get to the next venue, and he'd say it was 91.6%. He was making up numbers. There was, I saw through his facade, but his facade and the amount of information he supposedly gave people was enough to convince them that he was the person they needed to sign up, and he would make them money. Yeah. And he did exactly that. So after the first seven or eight minutes, he said, oh, if you want to hear more about X that he'd just spoken about, at the back of the room is my assistant, and they've got a set of DVDs. 
And those are special price today of $2.99. They're normally $5.99. And only if you buy them today. And then another 10 minutes later, well, with my coaching clients, I teach them this technique, whatever it is. And, you know, there's a special offer on your tables today. If you sign up today for my coaching, it's normally $10,000. It's only $7,000 today. So, So he did that stuff really well. But the hairs on the back of my neck stood up because he was unethical. Yeah. And, he, he and that's laughed. the thing. Making up numbers. Yeah, that's the thing with this. So many people have taken these sales formulas, which can still be very effective, but have used them to just generate sales selling stuff that yeah. isn't really doesn't really matter or just for their own benefits they don't really care about anything other than getting the sales through uh, and things like that where it seems like a lot of people have been wising up to that it's still, i think there's still a long way to go but uh, i think for the most part things seem to be much more moving towards the sort of relationship marketing side of things and that people feel that they want to have more connection now rather than the slick sales processes and formulas that more and more people are becoming aware of. And and when they have the awareness of them, they become that bit more immune to them as well, I think. So it's it's interesting you say that. I, I agree. I don't particularly like those, even though I've been taught them. I think I've even taught them a few times myself, but you see them used very badly in, in many cases as well. For sure. Well, when you see, you know, we I use a lot of profiling tools in my corporate, in my mentoring and coaching business. And one of the tools I use is DISC. And most people, when you say DISC the first time, go, ah, not that thing that's been around for so long. <laughs> but it's been around for so long and proven to be so efficient. That's the most amazing thing. Yeah. But the DNISC, we don't use DISC. We use red, yellow, green, and blue just because people remember colors better than letters. But more importantly, the D, the dominance, are the salespeople, right? That's your get out there and you know whatever. They're the only people who like being sold to. And so this is a technique I learned very early on, is don't sell. Even though you're trying to sell, don't sell. Just create an environment that makes it easy for people to buy. And so... Right. The, the statistics around the world are that about between 10 and 12% of the world are Ds or, or Reds in that formula. That means that 88 to 90% of the people in the world hate you because you're trying to sell to them. Okay? Yeah. But if you just give them information, you share information, you build relationships. You mentioned the word relationship marketing. And each of those four behavioral styles, I teach a whole two-day sales training course just using disk profiling and the way you communicate with each behavioral style. And so for the eyes, for the influencers, you want to tell them how good this product is for their team. You want to tell them how brilliant it is for team building and team dynamics and how good it is for the people around them. If, if, if someone is an S, you want to tell them, you, you want to build a relationship with them. You actually, they're not going to buy from you early on. So you have to build a personal relationship. You have to give, you have to share something from the heart. You have to, you have to, don't worry, you know, I'll give you a week. And in a week's time next Tuesday, what time suits you for me to call you? And you call them at that time and say, I've got a nice cup of coffee here. I hope you've got some coffee. Let's have a conversation. What can I answer? You build relationships. Yeah. Whereas the C's, the compliance, they are not relationship people. 
They are data-driven people. You have to give them three weeks to make a decision and give them every spreadsheet and every testimonial to review in that time. And that's a very short overview. But that's how you create an environment that makes it easy for people to buy as opposed to selling to them. Yeah, that's an important thing. I'm high eye on every disc profile I've ever done, which isn't too surprising yeah. for someone in coaching and the things that yes, I do. Absolutely. But, yeah. Yeah. but in my world, you'd be a yellow, right? right? But you'd have a second dominant color. Generally, most people would be, so I'm a high yellow, high red, but I hate being sold to. But because I was in finance for 20 years, I can don, oh, there it is, the blue hat. And become the compliance person. You know, I I can actually just dive deep into compliance and data if I have to. And that's, that's cool. part of it is that behavioral styles are also at a time and point. And so it's about reading them and it's about communicating. So that's how I sell. The other technique that I'm happy to share with you based on DISC, which is for presentations. For presentations, when you're talking to a big audience or any audience, more than one person, right? You start off with your red message or your D message, which is your your price and speed. That's what red is driven by, okay? And then you give and you get the reds in the room, the Ds nodding. They've got it. They understand what you're talking about. If you then went off into detail, the reds would nod off and fall asleep and pick up a mobile phone and start texting, right? You don't want that. So what you do is you start with the reds, you bring them on side, then you talk to the yellows in the room about, about long-term relationships with their team, and then you circle back to the reds and just keep the reds on side, keep them interested. Give them another quick fact about time, price, efficiency. Then go to the – now you've got the reds and the yellows nodding. You now go to the greens and talk to them about long-term relationships. And then – flip back into the red and the yellow to keep them as part of your group. Because you often do that. You'll see those people, they sit back, the reds. Okay, I've yeah. heard this. Now what else do I have to hear? And then you get to some of the detail for the blues and then quickly do some red, do some yellow, do some green. Keep looping back the whole time. And it's a great technique when you're selling from stage because you've now got the reds influencing because, you know, when you want people to put their hands up in an audience, don't do this. Do that. Tell them, I want to see, in my hands even out of camera, I want to see your hand waving, right? Cue them as to what you want to do. By having the reds cueing their, their nodding, they're cueing the others how to nod. So little sales technique. That's great. And I'm really, uh, really pleased that you shared that with us as well. I know I'm going to be reviewing this. Well, I, I will be anyway, because I have to edit the show, but uh, I will be reviewing this and making some notes whilst I do as well, because that's fascinating. Rail, everything you shared with us has been really interesting. And it's always a pleasure for me to chat to someone who really knows their stuff and has the experience and, and can express that well as well. So it's been a very valuable conversation. How can our audience find out more about you? So simple, railbricker.com or rail at railbricker.com. That's R-A-E-L. That's the simplest. I am on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook. I theoretically am on Twitter, but not very often. You occasionally find me in some clubhouse rooms, not very often. But LinkedIn is my primary, primary medium, LinkedIn and Instagram probably. But go to my website. There are a number of free downloads off the website. 
you know, a couple chapters in my book that are available. There's an ebook that I've written recently about building excellence. It's 48 pages. That's available there or on the Excellence Podcast website. Excellent. So, of course, people can come and check out your podcast as well. Just remind us what that's called. Yes, yeah, so www.excellencepodcast.com. It's called the Business Excellence Podcast, but its website is excellencepodcast.com. Fantastic. Now, I always like to ask my guests before we wrap things up, if you would give a book recommendation, and it can be fiction, nonfiction, something you've enjoyed, something you think has great value, what would yours be? There, there would be a couple, actually. The first is weird, nonfiction, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which goes back to the psychedelic 70s. <laughs> it was written in the 70s. I read it in the 80s. I recently bought it again, and my 16 or 17-year-old son started reading it. It's, it's a story of a university professor who had an amazing idea about education, which is not to have degrees, but to actually give people degrees based on their thirst for knowledge and not their marks. Interesting concept. He was declared as mad and was given this electrode therapy on his brain. And then he takes his son riding on a motorbike and he uses the motorbike as an analogy for life and the body and, and, and how you have to keep your motorbike maintained. That's what's called Zen and the auto motorcycle maintenance. But during this journey, he starts having flashbacks to his time at the university and his weird radical ideas. So it's a really weird book. I probably read it four times to get through it, to understand it. And there's a famous quote in there that I love that says, when you see an insane man, what you see is a, is a reflection of your own belief that they're insane. And I apply that to a lot of people in the world. I'll look at someone and say, God, that person's mad. And then I'll go, but maybe it's just my perception. To them, they're normal. You know, and whatever normal is, is a whole separate debate. That's the one book. And the other one is called Radical Candor. It's a great handbook for managers and it teaches you how not to have ruinous empathy with your team, but have radical candor, be able to communicate in a way that makes sense to the team and is not ruinous empathy, where you don't really care, but you're just being nasty. And and it's got some great models in that book. It's quite heavy reading, but it, it actually is a great model for managers. I, I like that. Many, many people take that sort of tough love attitude a, a little bit too far a lot of the time. And uh, Radical Candor sounds like a much better way of going. Also, I that, certainly have heard of it. Yeah. The opposite of Radical Candor is ruinous empathy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. So, Rail, as we wrap up, any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave everyone with today? I, I think that the fear of public speaking is something that drives a lot of people crazy. And it's not about overcoming the fear. Do I get nervous going on stage? I don't necessarily get nervous anymore, but I definitely have an elevated heart rate, and I normally take a few deep breaths before going on stage. That's my own technique. But it's not about overcoming the fear. Because if you overcome the fear, you become overconfident. It's about embracing the fear, using the energy of that fear to make you better as a presenter. And I think we spend too much time trying to get rid of the fear and, get, and and squash it down instead of giving it a big bear hug and saying, give me the energy to get out there. And I think that's probably the mindset shift that most corporate managers need to be able to present efficiently, 
effectively and with influence because that after all is the theme of your podcast absolutely well well Bricker, thank you so much for being my guest today and for sharing so much great information with us really appreciate it and we'll be back again next time with more great guests and information with speaking of influence see you again soon thanks for joining us i hope you've enjoyed the show if you did please make sure you subscribe and don't miss any future episodes whilst you're here why not pop over to presentinfluence.com and grab yourself a free copy of the last minute presentation checklist it might just save your ass someday next time on the show the voice coaches are coming the delightful ambika devi and dial hannah will be giving us two amazing episodes where we get some very different takes on voice coaching and ways to look after our vocal instruments and be able to speak and sound much better than we already do please remember that the contest to win one of two free copies of my previous guest matthew turner's book beyond the pale is still open all you have to do is leave a review for the show in Apple or Podchaser. Check the show notes for details. See you next time.